This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms joined the Washington Post to discuss Senator Kamala Harris's historic ascent to the Democratic ticket, efforts to combat voter suppression, and how she's responding to rising COVID-19 cases in her city after recovering from the virus herself. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. And today, my guest is Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. She's set to speak at the Democratic National Convention Thursday night. Mayor Bottoms, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. You as well. So good having you. And so first, I would love to hear your thoughts uh, about the former First Lady Michelle Obama's speech last night uh, as she closed out the Democratic National Convention. What was one of the main takeaways that you think voters really needed to hear and take with them as they head to the polls? I still get excited thinking about her speech. I, I literally dreamt about her speech last night. It was everything that we needed to hear. Uh, and, and even uh, from her delivery to the content, uh, it was simply pitch perfect. She said and, and articulated all of the things uh, that we have discussed in our kitchens and, and on television, uh, that this president is not able to lead this country um, and, and she did it not, not out of anger, but with true concern and compassion for who we are as Americans and all that we should be in this moment in time. And it was a perfect way to end the first night and certainly has set the tone for the next two days of the convention. You are uh, one of the few Black women to lead a huge city uh, in this country. And so I would imagine that seeing uh, Senator Kamala Harris chosen as uh, Joe Biden's running mate meant something important to you to see another Black woman hit that level of government uh, in terms of influence and power. And can you talk a bit about why it's so important to have uh, Black women in positions of leadership uh, at the top levels of uh, government? It's so important for so many reasons. One, um, women lead each and every day. We're leading in our churches. We're, we're leading in the workplace. We lead in our communities and in our families. But quite often as women, we don't call it leadership. It's just what we do. But over the past several years, you've seen so many women step up to the plate um, and, and this is, we're the in a long line of women who have been tremendous leaders in this country. Uh, but this year, we have so many women who are leading major cities. Obviously, we have Senator Harris, who's now joined the ticket. We saw Vice President Biden commit to selecting a woman. And we all went through a very thorough vet. So he, he meant what he said and, and was very intentional. Um, in assembling a group of women that he could consider. And when I saw that he named Kamala Harris, I obviously personally was disappointed that it was not me, but so very excited for our country and all that it represents. And my first thought was my daughter and what would she think of all of this and how this will resonate with her for years to come. So Joe Biden has picked an incredibly talented woman 
uh, one who's brilliant and certainly capable of leading. And it is just is an example for, for women and for girls across this country that there are no limits, that we are qualified to lead in, in the highest of offices and and America recognizes that and I think I think it's it's um it's fantastic to see it happen especially in 2020 where we've had so many disappointments this year. Mayor Bottoms, I've written about cities for quite some time and so many of the issues we're talking about today uh, find their roots in the cities, or at least, should we say, are really relevant uh, to residents of the cities, be they an economic downturn or a pandemic or civic unrest. But very rarely have we seen a mayor chosen as a VP candidate on a national ticket. Can you talk to us a bit about why you personally believe a mayor of a city, particularly a large city, would be really prepared to lead the country as a whole? There are 19,000 municipalities across this country. And so um, cities make up who we are as a nation. And as mayor, you're dealing with very big problems, but also those kitchen table issues that, that families have to deal with each and every day. And I'll just give the example of Atlanta. Atlanta is the capital city of Georgia, of course. But the metropolitan area in Atlanta is the 10th largest economy in the United States. So on this very large scale, we're dealing with issues that face the nation and are a concern to our federal government. But also on the other end of the spectrum, we're dealing with those issues related to job losses in our communities, related to how people um, will access quality health care, how they will access schools, quality schools for their children? Can they even afford to live in our cities with dignity? Um, and the list goes on and on and on. So Mayor Pete really set the stage for a mayor to lead our country. Um, I think we saw during the course of the campaign that people could be comfortable with that idea of a mayor, but I think it really is because as a mayor, we don't have a choice. Uh, we don't get to hop on the plane and, and fly to Washington and, and then show back up in our communities. We're here day in and day out, leading and dealing with the challenges that face our families. One of the challenges you've had to face and deal with quite a bit this summer and obviously before is just issues related to criminal justice reform as the nation figures out where it wants to go moving forward on issues uh, related to police violence. And this is also going to be a topic that uh, Senator Harris and Joe Biden have to address. And, and we've heard quite a bit of criticism uh, towards Senator Harris about her prosecutor accusatorial uh, record and just some other actions she uh, may have done or been involved in when she was working in politics in California. What, what could you say, what would you tell the Biden-Harris ticket that they can do to helpfully, hopefully appeal to more progressive voters or skeptical black voters who aren't just convinced that this ticket uh, will move the country in the direction that they're hoping related to policing? Well, when you look at Joe Biden's policy on, on criminal justice reform, it very succinctly lays out um, an opportunity for us to really fill in the gaps on the national level for many of the things that are of concern local, locally. So, for example, his criminal justice reform policy talks about providing monetary incentives to 
municipalities across the country who were navigating from mass incarceration, that in large part came from what we're doing in Atlanta. We're transforming our jail, which is over 450,000 square foot facility into a center of equity and health and wellness so that people can proactively access the resources they need. When he created that criminal justice policy, he sent it to us in Atlanta to allow us to give input based on some of the things that we're doing in our city. And so what I would say to Senator Harris and, and to Vice President Biden, uh, the policy is there. Uh, he's listened to us. And I, I know by virtue of the fact that he, that Senator Harris is joining him on the ticket, she will also listen to us and continue to get input from our cities because we're, we're dealing with it. My belief has always been with criminal justice, and this in large part is based as the time, based upon the time I spent as a judge, you're either going to pay on the front end or you're going to pay on the back end. You're either going to pay to house people in jail and all of the costs that are associated with crime, or you're going to pay on the front end and give people an access to opportunity and access to resources that will allow them to succeed and overcome many of the systemic obstacles uh, that lead to a life of crime. So Mayor Bottoms, you were an early supporter of Vice President Joe Biden, uh, one of the more prominent black women to come out uh, in favor of him and one of the more uh, prominent big city mayors. And, and I remember the last time you were on Watch Post Live, I think in like February, you predicted that he would win the primary. Um, what gave you such confidence, uh, considering how large the field was and, and how unpopular he was with some segments of the electorate? You know, Eugene, my, my best polling source is my mother. And I often think about what does she care about? And, and when she goes in a club meeting, um, her bridge club meeting once a month on Saturdays, what are they talking about? And with every twist and turn and sometimes stumbles, uh, throughout the primary season, she never left Joe Biden. And what was consistent is what I said throughout the course of the primary and caucus season, we know Joe. And I knew, and, and I still know where his heart is. And, and I, I know what he's done for this country. And so a lot of times when we're discussing things on television or on social media, the, they feel, it feels bigger um, and more off-putting than it actually is. But my test case, like I said, is my mother or going into the barbershop with my sons. What are they talking about in the barbershop? What's my mom talking about at her bridge club meeting? And what I saw is that she was not wavering from Joe Biden. It didn't mean that, you know, it, it wasn't sometimes rocky. Um, because we know that's the nature of the primary and caucus season, but she never wavered. And that gave me the confidence even with the early states. And, and I remembered that Bill Clinton lost the first several primaries. Um, and I, I believe it may have been 12, in fact, that he lost before he was victorious and ultimately took the nomination. And I just believed in my heart that's what we were going to see with Joe Biden. And I'm very, very grateful that I was right about it. Indeed. I, I often say Twitter is important, but it's not everything when trying to understand the population as a whole. Um, Joe I Biden. 
my mother doesn't even have a Twitter account. So if it's being discussed on Twitter, she's not going to see it. It's very, no, it's very, very true. I think it's something uh, a lot of journalists and a lot of political pundits need to remember. Um, but speaking of uh, Joe Biden again and, and your mother's generation, um, we are seeing the future um, of the Democratic Party look very different from Joe Biden. A lot of women, a lot of people of color, a lot of LGBT Americans. How can uh, you know we unite uh, this party with its future leaders, with some of the individuals who are still in positions of power uh, to move the left in the direction that they want to go ultimately? Well, on the other end of the spectrum is my 18-year-old who will be voting in his first presidential election. And what does he care about? And he is influenced by social media. He he has all the social media accounts. And by the way, I don't even think he's on Twitter. He's on Snapchat and, and whatever else that I still haven't quite figured out. My point being is obviously the Democratic Party, we, we have a lot of diversity, age diversity, racial diversity, sexual orientation, you go down the list. And it's important that we all have a voice and a say in our party. And as I had the great honor of chairing the platform committee, that's what I saw coming together with more than 55 witnesses that we have testified um, 11 hours of testimony, and that doesn't include uh, the various unity, subunity committees, there was an opportunity for all of these varied voices to be heard and to have input in our party's platform. And I think the biggest thing for us as a party is to recognize there is no right and wrong way anymore. There is no, no perfect path but it really is about us all coming together, listening to one another, working together and creating a platform and a party that really is reflective of who we are as Americans. Along those uh, lines, you know, if you think back to 2016, uh, at this point in the campaign, there was still a lot of tension between uh, the Sanders camp and the Clinton camp. And, and some saying, uh, watching it, say it perhaps doesn't seem uh, as tense as it was then um, with Biden and Sanders. And so how can the Biden campaign like maximize that and still perhaps, you know, win over the last few, um, I guess, progressives or people on the left who still aren't convinced uh, that he should be the person they vote for? So it's interesting you would say that as I was watching Senator Sanders speak last night, and by the way, he gave a great speech as well. I looked at my husband, I said, I think he really likes Joe Biden. You can tell that there is a, a personal affection and, and mutual respect there. I don't, I don't know one way or the other um, about his relationship with Senator Clinton or personally know of his relationship with Vice President Biden, other than the fact that I, I could see that there um, was certainly genuine admiration and respect for Vice President Biden as he gave his speech last night. But I think the leadership of Senator Sanders obviously is important because he has a, a very strong and, and vocal uh, part of the Democratic Party that looks to him for leadership. And again, going back to as we put together and work together on the platform committee, there were representatives from Senator Sanders's campaign, which was important. And what we have to remember, again, it's not going to always work out the way 
either of us wants it. But going back to my time as a judge and even practicing as an attorney, whenever you're negotiating, you don't see it as a loss if you don't get everything that you want. But to the extent that you can come together and you can meet halfway in the middle, um, that should be content considered a success. And it doesn't always mean that we won't get to one side or the other. It just may mean that we're not there yet. So it's not always a period. Sometimes it's a comma. And this coming together this year in 2020, um, I think really is a reflection of, of who we are as a party and how we should be as a party. We gotta hear it from all sides and we've gotta be open to hearing it and to receiving it and, and being genuine in our desire to work together to come up with something that gets us close to the middle um, as a party. Well, we can't talk about efforts to get more voters out without talking about efforts to keep some voters home, uh, and specifically when it relates to uh, Black voters and voter suppression, especially in Georgia, something you're very, very familiar with. Um, we know in 2016, about 60% of Blacks voted. What can Democrats do to energize the base and turn out voters, uh, especially in the midst of COVID, the pandemic, um, which is disproportionately affecting Black people, and, and also efforts to keep Black people home? This is a very different year in so many ways. We're used to often to being able to run a traditional campaign. You go and knock on doors and you have rallies. But now we've got to think outside the box. And whereas social media is not always the largest, most elevated part of a campaign, it's important that we elevate that to energize and bring out younger voters. And also um, an opportunity, we have to take the opportunity to speak to them with the voices that they will hear it from and receive it from. So for example, if I'm speaking to my eight-year-old, he may or may not listen to what I have to say, but if it's a celebrity influencer who's encouraging him and speaking to him, it certainly has a different impact. But also keeping in mind, there are people like my mother that if you don't call her on the phone directly in the old fashioned way, or, or if she doesn't get something in the mail, she may not be swayed one way or the other. So I think it's an opportunity for us to continue to expand those things that we, we know work, but also to be creative. If you remember back in um, 2008, Remember emailing and the social media piece in the Obama-Biden campaign was something innovative we had never seen before? Well, I think in 2020, it's the same opportunity for us to be innovative, expanding our point of contact with folk, but certainly not leaving behind the traditional methods um, which we use to energize voters. Uh, we know that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed 55 years ago, but it, voter suppression is still a big issue. How, how concerned are you about voter suppression uh, in this coming election? I'm extremely concerned. And in fact, um, as I was preparing to chat with you, I was reviewing a letter that I'm, I'm sending uh, regarding my concerns in the state of Georgia. In Georgia, for our June primary, what we saw were lines eight and nine hours long for people to early vote. People were purged from the voter rolls. It was absolutely ridiculous. And 
Uh, Georgia is now one of 45 states that's received this letter from the general counsel of the Postal Service saying, by the way, we already know you're going to have problems with mail-in ballots in your state. So what we're doing in Georgia, um, I'm encouraging people, if, it, if it's safe and if you are healthy, please vote as early as you can in person, if you can, um, as long as you can do it safely with your mask on. If you are in Fulton County, where Atlanta is, is in Fulton and DeKalb counties, but uh, State Farm Arena has been opened up by the Atlanta Hawks. It's a very big facility with very spacious voting booths. We're encouraging people to go there to vote. And just to remember, we aren't the first generation who's experienced challenges with voting, but it is a sacred right. And Congressman Lewis reminded us in his parting words, if we don't exercise that right, we can lose it. You mentioned earlier uh, if if voters feel safe and protected. Um, that reminds me, you you mentioned earlier in this year that you had contracted uh, COVID, and I just wanted to know how you're doing and uh, how's your husband and just what was that experience like for you? It was very frightening, and thank you for asking. I'm I was pretty much asymptomatic aside from just needing to take a nap um, and, and a few sniffles and coughs here and there. My son was um, primarily asymptomatic, but my husband is still having a number of lingering effects. He wakes up every morning with a migraine headache. Uh, he's fatigued. He has muscle pain, many of the symptoms that you hear people speak about. And so this is, uh, for as frightening as the experience was, it is very frightening not knowing what the lingering effects of COVID will be. And we were fortunate. My husband was not hospitalized. He slept more than I've ever seen any human being aside from a baby sleep. Uh, so he, he wasn't as bad as many that you see on television. We count ourselves fortunate because we're, we're still, we're alive and, and healthy, but it does concern me uh, that we don't know what this means long-term for any of us. And I would imagine that personal experience shaped how you handled this politically. I, I recall you reinstated some restrictive safeguards in Atlanta last month, um, including a citywide mandatory mask mandate. And Georgia Governor Brian Kemp sued you and the Atlanta City Council because of this. Uh, he has since dropped the lawsuit. Did, did these actions surprise you at all? This whole thing has been bizarre with the governor. What was interesting, I intentionally waited to institute Atlanta's mask mandate and went behind some other cities in the state because I wanted to see if the governor would have a response, particu particularly to Van Johnson, mayor of Savannah, Georgia. He didn't respond to Savannah, Athens, and I can name many other cities in the state, but when Atlanta filed this suit, I mean, instituted its mask mandate. The day after Donald Trump came to our city and I pointed out that he was violating our mandate by not having on a mask at the airport, uh, we were sued. And so we were in the midst of negotiations with the governor's office in mediation. I reached out to the governor uh, because I, I am quite frankly just disgusted that Georgia's on the track that we're on and, and we're looking so poorly throughout the nation. I'd hope we would come to some type of settlement. We 
negotiated a lot, but where we were stuck uh, related to businesses and whether or not we could institute this mask mandate inside businesses and who would enforce the mandate. And when I would not give in on that, um, the governor without notice just issued a press statement uh, saying that mediation was over. So I share all that with you. Um, it's been very concerning to see the amount of misinformation that's been pushed out from the governor's office. What concerns me about it is in the context of the data gathering in our state, because there have been a lot of questions on the integrity of that data related to COVID and being on the other end, seeing the misinformation that was intentionally mis uh, pushed out by his office. It now makes me not give the benefit of the doubt as it relates to the data integrity of the data. I now question whether or not that's being intentionally um, intentionally misrepresented. Speaking of data uh, in Georgia related to coronavirus, we saw quite a few photos go viral earlier uh, this month of schools reopening in suburban Atlanta um, and students being packed into these hallways shoulder to shoulder. And as a result, we've now seen some schools already have to quarantine students um, after cluster outbreaks. Do you think schools in the Atlanta area open too early? I do. Given where we are with our number, um, the availability of hospital beds, where we are with the positivity rate, where we are with the infection rate, it does concern me. Uh, Atlanta Public Schools has decided to go virtual only for the first nine weeks. Some schools are giving parents the option of going in-person or virtual. Um, I, I think that's at the very least what we can do for our teachers and cafeteria workers and custodians and bus drivers. Um, I think they also need the option as to whether or not they will go in person. I know some colleges and universities are giving professors the option of whether or not they will teach in person in class. It's very challenging. Uh, my morning got off to a very rocky start trying to get three of my four kids going on virtual learning. And we had some hiccups. And then, of course, I had to, to be at work. So it is, it's challenging. Um, but this is not a normal year. Nothing is normal about this year. And the sooner that we have the discipline that we need as a country and as a state to lock down or do whatever it is we need to do, wear a mask, whatever these things are, then the sooner we can get our economy going and get back to a normal life. But we're, we aren't going to ever get there because we don't have leadership that's that's calling upon us to take the steps that are needed to get to the other side of COVID-19. This, in fact, has not been a normal year in many ways, but there have been some good to come out of it. Uh, you've been catapulted pretty much into the national spotlight. You've been called America's favorite mayor. You made the vice presidential shortlist. You're speaking at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, can you give us some ideas of some of the themes you uh, hope to hit on uh, to persuade voters to come out and support Joe Biden? I wish my kids loved all those names and called me all those things, too. <laughs> Um, so this has been all about unifying our country. This is uh, about restoring the soul of America. And it, it obviously is 
a, a phrase and a slogan we're using for the campaign, but it's real. When you look at Donald Trump uh, saying he wants to interfere with our election, that is the most undemocratic thing that you could possibly do and say. So this convention is about reminding us of, of not only who we are, but who we should be and who we can be. And what I saw last night was a reflection of who we are as a country, people of all walks of life who are just saying, I care about America. I believe in the possibilities of who we are um, as a nation. And that's what we're gonna see over the next two nights. The convention is speaking to the issues that are challenging us across this country. Obviously we didn't have a crowd and, and oftentimes the, the tone was a bit more somber, but this is a pretty somber year. Um, and to put our heads in the sand and, and act as if everything is okay and we can wish it away um, is it, not very productive. So I'm excited about the next two nights of the convention. Again, going back to Michelle Obama, she she summed it up for all of us. That literally was a drop the mic moment, and it, I I I I am certain that the tonight and tomorrow night uh, will continue to reflect the that fierce urgency of now that Dr. King reminded us of. Well, we're excited to watch, uh, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have right now with the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. But thank you so much for taking time to join us. Good luck Thursday. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you and thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.